So what is the gospel? Are you sure you know? Let's tell the story, the narrative, not the fake news. God's gospel begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and is then given us in verses 14 to 15. God's gospel occurs eight times in the New Testament. Mark 1, 14, Romans 1, 1, and 16, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, and verse 9, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7, 1 Peter 4, verse 15. So Jesus, Paul, and Peter speak of the kingdom gospel, Operation King and Queenmaker, we might call it. The first Adam failed, and the second Adam succeeds. This is the A to Z of the gospel, from disaster to destiny in the kingdom. In Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, to chapter 6, verse 3, the sun rises. There's a repeated pattern of failure and restoration. We might say from dust to kingship. First Kings 16, verse 2, I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel. Seventy-seven times the dead are said to be sleeping in the dust and resurrection of dead persons to kingship is the only solution to death, the only way to recovery of consciousness. This encapsulates God's program and activity in Christ, who is the second Adam. And Jesus is the mediator of the new kingdom covenant. Not just copying Moses in the letter, but bringing the words of the new covenant in the spirit. As we read in John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus. Water was turned into wine, old cloth and new cloth. The devil hates the new covenant brought by the words or gospel as Jesus preached it from the beginning. Luke 16 verse 16, Mark 1 verses 1 to 2 and Mark 1 14 and 15. Luke 16, 16 is the great shift of the eras. The greatest man and greater than the prophets was John the Baptist. Yet the life of the kingdom person is greater. As George Ladd says, for Jesus, society is divided into two antithetical classes. Those who hear and receive the word of the kingdom and those who either do not know it or reject it. The kingdom of God is the organizing center of all Jesus taught. The phrase gospel of the kingdom is shockingly absent everywhere. The kingdom, nevertheless, is the key to knowledge. Compare with that Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11 where the righteous servant makes people right by his knowledge. Thus, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20 is a critical and neglected key to right understanding 
and we are to be made right by the Messiah's knowledge. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 3, but the NIV ruins that simple truth. Dust you are, and to dust you will return, and resurrection is your only way of existing in the future, in the glory of kingship and the restoration of Adam to God's intention for man in Christ. God's intention for Adam was to be vice-regent for God, and in Jesus, this purpose is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. Daniel 12 verse 2 says, Many of those now sleeping in the dusty earth will wake up, some to the life of the coming age, ruined by the vague translation eternal life, which is not specific enough. In John 1 verse 1 we have the curse of the capital letter. The capital W, Word, was with God. It should be in the Word, lowercase w, in the Word was life and light, and immortality comes to light and life in the Gospel. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Truth, Kingdom Covenant, Luke 22, 29, Abrahamic, Davidic, and Jesuanic covenant, words of Jesus, who is the new Moses of the Spirit. The goal is found in Jeremiah 27, verse 5, and Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, and Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. The English translations often hide the key word covenant. The author of a series of explanatory sermons on essential Christianity asked astutely in 1894. He asked the question. He puts his finger on the disaster which happened to God's king-making project. He says this, Have you seriously pondered the fact that Jesus Christ was always preaching the kingdom of God? and that in the model prayer which he gave us, he taught us to pray always that his kingdom might come. Matthew 6 verse 10. In the present day, men are always talking about the church. In view of this modern practice, is it not startling to be reminded that in the model prayer there is no reference at all to the church, whilst the reference to the kingdom is prominent and pronounced. So far as the record goes, Christ referred to the church only twice. On the other hand, he speaks of the kingdom not less than 112 times. The same author went on to point out that one of the most mischievous and fatal mistakes ever made in Christian history was the mistake of St. Augustine who identified the kingdom of God with the church. But the church is no more the kingdom of God than the British army is the British Empire. It is high time for all Christians to ponder the long-lost teaching of Christ with respect to the kingdom of God. That's a quotation from Hugh Price Hughes in his book, 
essential Christianity. John MacArthur rightly says, I'm convinced that our lack of clarity on the most basic matter of all, the gospel, is the greatest detriment to the work of the church in our day. That's in MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. I would say that this remains a serious problem also for current Abrahamic people. And I add that in Billy Graham's book on how to be born again, there's not a word about the gospel of the kingdom, nor about the parable of the sower, the parable which Jesus said was the one parable we cannot afford not to understand. For fear of not being able to understand any of the parables. You'll find that in Mark chapter 4, verse 13. Billy Graham says that Jesus, and I quote, came to do three days' work. Compare that with our creed, which says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The preaching of the kingdom of God has been left out by Billy Graham and by our creed. Missiologist Mortimer Arias says, we seem to be faced with an eclipse of the kingdom of God from the apostolic age to the present, particularly in our theology of evangelism. The kingdom of God is God's own dream, his project for the world and for humanity. He makes us dreamers, and he wants us to be seduced by his dream. It is not we who dream, but God who dreams in us. Mortimer Arias goes on to say, When I left the seminary, I had no clear idea of the kingdom of God, and I had no place in my theology for the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. I had no concerns about the future. Thousands of books are printed, he says, and circulated every year on evangelization. Most of these fall into the category of how-to manuals for churches, as to say, devising plans and strategies, methodologies and goals. Then Mortimaris says this, our traditional mini-theologies the plan of salvation for spiritual laws, they do not do justice to the whole gospel. Not all this activity or activism is a sign of health or creativity. The good news of the kingdom is not the usual way we describe the gospel and evangelization. The kingdom of God has practically disappeared from evangelistic preaching and has been ignored by traditional evangelism. The evangelistic message has been centered in personal salvation, individual conversion, and incorporation into the church. But the kingdom of God as a parameter or perspective or content of the gospel has been virtually absent. Those interested in evangelism have not yet been interested in the kingdom of God. Why not try Jesus' own definition of his mission? 
and ours. For Jesus, evangelism was no more and no less than announcing the kingdom of God. That's from Mortimer Arias in his book Announcing the Reign of God, written in 1984. The Mormons say that the kingdom of God on earth is the Mormon church now. That makes the gospel of the kingdom disappear. Origen said that Jesus is the self-kingdom. Thus the kingdom disappeared behind the name Jesus. If we say Victoria was the British Empire, we are not misled. But by Origen, people are easily taken in. He too was the author of the eternal generation of the Son, who according to that system had a beginningless beginning. Note how important sowing is. In Jewish sources, sowing is used of God's giving of life and of his renewal of the life of his people and of the giving of the Torah, the law and covenant and the fruit that it must bear. The parable of Jesus about the sower builds on this background and expresses Jesus' confidence in the great potency of the renewal that is being worked out through his ministry. Luke 4.43, where we find the purpose statement of Jesus so beautifully expressed, the reason he came was to announce and preach the gospel of the kingdom. In relaxed confidence, Jesus sows generously, assured of an extravagant fruitfulness, no matter how much of the field receives the sowing in vain. The question to each individual in the crowds is, in which soil do you find imaged your own engagement with the renewal set off by Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God gospel. That's a quotation from the word biblical commentary on Luke. Another word biblical commentary on Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 26 to 31. They say this, even the spiritual leaders of the people had been corrupted by the ethos of the age. The prophets, whose responsibility it was to declare God's word to the people, prophesied falsely. Instead of speaking the divine word, they proclaimed their own words, offering comfort to the oppressors and disillusionment to the depressed. The prophets, no doubt, benefited financially from their falseness in being rewarded by those who desire to hear no uncomfortable message. But the proclamation of falsehood by the prophets was a further terrible evil. When the word of prophecy had become falsehood, who any longer knew the truth? Indeed, the task of one like Jeremiah must have been infinitely more difficult in the time when false prophets proliferated. How was he to establish that his word was the truth? And the majority of his colleagues were saying something entirely different. 
not only the prophets, but also the priest had failed and the tasks that they were assigned had failed. He continued, no doubt, to fulfill their formal functions in worship, but they made a mockery of their own activities by condoning evil, and their role of teaching the true faith must have been abandoned because all along they knew the truth in their own lives. But what's worse than the failure of prophet and priest was the miserable state of affairs into which the nation sunk. Evil had become a daily diet. There was great consolation in not being reproved by a prophet or approached by a priest. And yet the message ends on an ominous note, not developed in any detail, yet pregnant with the threat of judgment. What will you do, says Jeremiah, when it ends? Verse 31 of Jeremiah 5. When the era of evil finally terminated and judgment came, an entire nation would discover this. Now let us hear the words of Jesus as corrective to popular understanding. Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12 makes the astonishing assertion that repentance depends on an intelligent understanding of the gospel of the kingdom. This is exactly a repeat of Mark's opening statement about the beginning of the gospel of God, about the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 which is exactly equal to Luke 16, verse 16, and Jesus' opening words that we are to repent and believe in that gospel of the kingdom of God. The command to repent is not a vague instruction to give up whatever we conceive as evil. Rather, it's a command to understand and join God's king-making restoration program and project in Messiah Jesus, the reversal of the catastrophe which happened in Adam and Eve, this gets at the mind and agenda of Jesus. We're invited to be the privileged but servant group, the insiders who know what's going on and to find our destiny as co-rulers with Jesus in the coming kingdom. The kingdom described in Daniel 2, verse 44, and Daniel 7, verses 18, 22, and 27. We're being trained now to run the world with Jesus, but not yet. This is vastly different from being a good chap, so that at the moment we die, we go into the sky to play a harp forever as a disembodied soul. The popular notion so widespread in church is a travesty of the gospel of the kingdom. Abrahamic people in the 1850s, I think, 
did not fully realize the vastness and hugeness of what they were allowed to rediscover by a plain reading of Scripture in its messianic sense. With the huge availability now of information, we ought to be able to do much better than they. For good information on the Gospel of the Kingdom, please see the book by Wiley Jones, The Gospel of the Kingdom, free at our site, focusonthekingdom.org. Luke 8, verses 11 to 12, is a blockbuster, high-tension, high-powered verse in the same parable of the sower. Jesus is with the seed of the kingdom planting the royal family of the coming renewal of the kingdom of God on earth at the future restoration of all things. Acts 3 verse 21, Acts 1 verse 6. Luke 8.12 Please think immediately also of Acts 8.12 the slogan text of the first Abrahamics Luke 8.12 sums up the Bible story. It says this, When anyone is exposed to the gospel about the kingdom, the devil is ready to snatch the kingdom of God gospel word from his heart or mind, so that, as Jesus said, he cannot believe it and be saved. Yet in scores of tracts offering salvation, you will hear not a word about the gospel of the kingdom. This should alarm us and get us going into action. Deuteronomy 33 verse 9 says, For they observed your word and kept your covenant. First Chronicles 11 verse 3, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. First Chronicles 16 verse 15 says, Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. And then Psalm 105 verse 8 God has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. As for the kingdom of God, we believe all of Jesus' teachings regarding the future kingdom were relevant and are important to Christians today. However, whether or not a full understanding of the kingdom of God is central to salvation is another matter. Romans 10 verses 9 to 10 tells us that in order to be saved we must confess Jesus as our Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. This by no means discounts anything Jesus taught as important. It simply means that the matter of salvation is about confession and belief in the resurrection. I'm quoting there a typical muddle from the evangelical world. That quotation is a typical muddle pitting Paul against Jesus. Paul also said that they cannot hear without a preacher. 
and that the hearers must not just hear of or about Jesus, but they must hear Jesus preach, as to say, preach the gospel of the kingdom. Note the crime scene here. You cannot confess Jesus without confessing what Jesus said about being saved, as he did in Luke 8, verses 11 to 12. And note and remember always Isaiah 53, 11, By his knowledge my righteous servant will make many right. There's no such thing as a Christian without a ministry. The late Kent Ross urged us year by year, for many of the past 20 years, to concentrate our efforts on the fascinating verse from Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, when he urged us all to contend earnestly and struggle for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3. It's my strong impression that the faith is currently under attack. Did not Paul warn that, and I quote Paul here, evil men would get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. At present, this is happening in an unprecedented way. The Bible is a book of imperatives, commands, often very simple ones like pray always, rejoice, and don't judge. I want now to give you some amazing quotation from sites claiming to be speaking in the name of Jesus and on the authority of the Bible, but sites which in fact eradicate huge sections of the Bible, and they do it in the name of Jesus. I'm referring here to what is called dispensationalism, its operational basis and platform is that we should not believe as gospel the gospel which was preached by Jesus. I quote here from Don Sandow, who has a master's from Dallas Theological Seminary. There is no gospel in the gospels. It might seem shocking, but it's true. I suggest to you that if you visit one of the thousands of sites Claiming to have the gospel, you'll find almost none defining the gospel as the gospel about the kingdom of God. I suggest that we urgently need to battle for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. I suggest that the Abrahamic people in the 1850s recovered a huge and monumental truth not only about who God and Jesus are, but about the content of the saving gospel itself as the gospel about the kingdom. Their slogan text was Acts 8.12. And brilliantly so. Acts 8.12 says this, When they believed Philip, as he preached the gospel about the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ, they were getting baptized, both men and women. The Abrahamic people preached on this and founded churches. In fact, an entire denomination with this slogan, the verse which reflects a common theme of Scripture, Psalm 105, verse 21, God made him Lord over his house. 
Every movement needs a concise, comprehensive encapsulation, a slogan of its intentions. Acts 8.12, used as far as I can see by almost nobody today, gave them just what they needed. They were in competition with a system which very vaguely urged people to, quote, believe in Jesus, or even with the King James, to believe on Jesus. But the gospel being offered to the public was reduced to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is only a half gospel, and it omitted the basic and primary element of the gospel as preached by Jesus and Paul, namely the gospel about the kingdom, which included, of course, heaven at the moment you die, and that heaven at death replaced the future kingdom. The Bible has its own ways of expressing what is essential and non-negotiable. For example, Paul frames the book of Romans with the phrase, obedience of faith, in Romans 1 and in Romans 16. There's no true faith without obedience and no obedience without faith. As you know, the whole battle over faith and works since the Reformation under Luther has made the whole subject seem impossibly complicated. I remind you that Luther wrote in his early ministry that the book of Revelation is not a Christian book. And Luther reckoned that the Gospel of John is to be treated as the real spiritual gospel. And the book of James, Luther said, is a mere epistle of straw. In German, ein Strohbrief. And yet people flocking to Lutheran churches are blithely unaware of these staggering dogmatic statements of their founder. John Calvin, who brutally murdered Michael Servetus, the Unitarian, reveals his anti-gospel of the kingdom of God stand at Acts 1 verse 6. That's the passage where the disciples, after six weeks further lecture on the kingdom of God from the risen Christ, in addition to their three and a half years training under Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom, they asked this bright question. They said, has the time now come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's God's great theme. Of those marvelous words, Calvin says, there are more errors in that question than there are words. And yet Calvin has millions of devoted followers. He promotes the dreadful doctrine, too, of double predestination. Amos 8, verses 11 and 12 read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north around to the east. They will wander about looking for the word of the Lord. 
but they will not find it. This reminds us of Jesus' own question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? Luke 18, verse 8. It reminds me, too, of the horrifying prediction in Isaiah chapter 29 that a time will come when the entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. And then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. I go on with a quotation from Isaiah. Then the Lord said, because the people draws near with their words and they honor me with their lip service, a kind of group think, but they remove their hearts from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, Matthew 15, 8. The truth of what Amos wrote and Jesus pondered is apparently and urgently relevant to our present time. Use this article to check yourself. Are you clear about what Christianity has taught by Jesus and the Bible, the rest of the Bible, that is, really is? The first question to all would-be believers is, what is the gospel as Jesus preached it to us? What did Jesus teach us about being saved, gaining immortality, living literally forever? Is there a greater question than that? Does not that sound like an important issue? What am I supposed to understand and believe in order to be a genuine believer in and follower of Jesus? You might think that following the words and teachings and gospel of Jesus Christ would be the obvious basis for true Christian faith. But leading evangelical scholars say, no, it's not. Please read and ponder the following amazing quotations from leading evangelicals. Yes, please be suitably shocked and zealous to change this. We're all commanded by Jesus to be involved in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Teaching as true Christianity, the teachings of Jesus the Christ. Correct? But now listen to this from Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries, who died in 2007. Many people today think that the essence of Christianity is the teachings of Jesus, but that is not so. The teachings of Jesus, Dr. Kennedy said, are somewhat secondary to Christianity. If you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, which make up about half of the New Testament, you'll see almost nothing whatsoever said about the teachings of Jesus. Not one of his parables is mentioned. In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's little reference to the teachings of Jesus. In the Apostles' Creed, the most universally held Christian creed, there is no reference to the teachings of Jesus or to the example of Jesus. In fact, in recounting Christ's earthly life, 
The creed states simply that he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. It mentions only two days in Jesus' life, that of his birth and that of his death. So Kennedy said this, Christianity centers not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus as the incarnate God who came into the world to take upon himself our guilt and to die in our place. But this is a huge and pernicious falsehood, since Paul preached exactly the same gospel of the kingdom as did Jesus, and he preached it to everyone. See, for Jesus and Paul and Philip, Acts 1.3, Acts 1.6, Acts 8.12, Acts 14.22, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verses 24 and 25, and Acts 28, 23 and 31. What do you think then of this amazing statement that I want to read to you now? Would you be taken in by the following? Dr. Harold O.J. Brown said, Christianity takes its name from its founder, or rather from what he was called, the Christ. Buddhism is also named for its founder, and non-Muslims often call Islam Mohammedanism. But while Buddhism and Islam are based primarily on the teaching of the Buddha and Muhammad, respectively, Christianity is based primarily on the person of Christ. The Christian faith is not belief in his teaching, but in what is taught about him. The appeal of Protestant liberals to believe as Jesus believed, rather than to believe in Jesus, is a dramatic transformation of the fundamental nature of Christianity. That's from Dr. Harold O.J. Brown's book, Heresies, written in 1984. That, with respect to Harold O.J. Brown, is a colossal lie. You are instructed by this very misleading preacher not to believe in Jesus and not to believe his teaching. Now note the same gigantic falsehood from the very famous C.S. Lewis. Lewis denies Jesus while claiming to follow him. I quote, The Gospels are not the Gospel, the statement of Christian belief. Do you grasp what he says here? So then the words of Jesus, according to C.S. Lewis, are not the gospel. This must be the ultimate falsehood, the ultimate deception. So then Jesus has to be rescued from church. Remember that the four gospels make up about half of the whole New Testament. They're dedicated to what Jesus taught as the saving gospel. Dr. James Dunn observes that the words of Jesus really do not count for some commentators. Dr. James Dunn says this. He observes that the words of Jesus really do not count for some commentators. Here are the words of James Dunn. Hurtado does not think it necessary 
for Jesus to have thought and spoken of himself in the same terms as his followers thought and spoke of him in the decades subsequent to his crucifixion in order for the convictions of those followers to be treated as valid by Christians today. Though he also notes that most Christians probably think that there was some degree of continuity between what Jesus thought of himself and subsequent Christology. Has Hurtado read the New Testament? Finally, to make what I think is a shocking point which should spur us all on to struggle for the faith once and for all delivered, I ask the question again, are the Gospels Christian? Again, Don Somdow, with his Master's in Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, writes at doctrine.org. He says this, most Christian churches spend the majority of their time in the Gospels. I would venture to say that 90% of the churches spent 90% of their time in these four books. While Christians should study all of the Scripture, Romans 15 verse 4, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, the Gospels, says Don Somdahl, contain no Christianity. This may be shocking, but it's true. Not one word of Christianity, says Don Somdahl, exists in the Gospels. The Gospels, he says, are all Jewish. They contain only Judaism, Jewish theology. He goes on, what we call by convention the Old Testament ends with a prophecy of the coming of Elijah. The Gospels pick up with this prophecy in Luke chapter 1, 12 to 17. What is the significance? We should be alerted to one simple fact. The Gospels, says Don Somdal, are Old Testament. They are as much Old Testament as Genesis, Deuteronomy, or Isaiah. Everything in them is Jewish and pertains to the nation of Israel, the covenant promises, and the coming of the prophesied earthly kingdom of God. He goes on, if John's appearance as Elijah is not sufficient proof, the Gospels are Judaism and not Christianity, the scriptures provide additional evidence of this fact. Number one, the environment of the Gospels is the Mosaic Law. Jesus ministered under the Mosaic Law, as did the Twelve. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, Mark 10, verses 2 to 9, and Mark chapter 17 to 22, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, verses 17 and verses 11 to 14, and Luke 18, verses 18 to 22. Paul, however, wrote that Christians are not under the Mosaic law. We are under the administration of grace. Romans 6, verse 14. 
These are two vastly different operating environments. Number four, so says Somdal, no one was known as a Christian inside the borders of Israel during the ministry of Jesus or before the salvation of Saul or Paul. Those who believed the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, were known as followers of the way. Acts 9 verse 2, Acts 19 verse 9, verse 23, Acts 22 verse 4, verse 24, and Acts 14, 22. They, says Don Samdal, were not Christians. He goes on, nothing in Jewish theology proclaimed a heavenly kingdom, and the Jews had no hope of dying and going to heaven. They certainly had no concept of a kingdom in the hearts of men. Their hope was earthly. The idea of a heavenly kingdom or a kingdom in the hearts of men are but fanciful creations of those who do not know their Bibles. They are projections forced upon the text from Don Sumdal. I hope that our audience will be suitably shocked and shaken by these amazing words from a so-called dispensationalist scholar. We have to point out that his very false understanding of the faith could not be more blatant and clear. What has happened in his dogmatic assertions is that Jesus has been separated from his own gospel preaching. Can a greater catastrophe than this be imagined? Dispensationalism is a fancy and tricky word for getting rid of the parts of the Bible, in this case the teaching of Jesus, which you don't care for and which your church does not believe in. The teaching of Jesus according to dispensationalism can be removed from your attention by just saying that Jesus spoke only to Jews. You, says this very false theory, are not to pay attention to the teachings of Jesus, which are for Jews only. But what they don't tell you is that Jesus deliberately spoke first to the house of Israel and later commanded that the same kingdom gospel teachings were to go to the whole world until the end of the age, which of course is not AD 70. We urge our audience to do whatever they can, as their expression of love for people so dramatically misled, and from loyalty to Jesus, who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14 verse 15. So then we should contend earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude chapter 3. At the transfiguration, which was a vision, according to Matthew 17 verse 9, a vision of the future kingdom of God on the earth with the resurrected Moses and Elijah seen in a glorified state, the voice of God himself was heard 
The voice said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Paul reflects often on how seriously he took that announcement from God. Paul said, If anyone comes to you and does not bring the health-giving teaching of Jesus, he is pompous and deluded. 1 Timothy 6, 3-4 So important are the words of Jesus that Paul warned of any system of teaching which interfered with or obstructed the teaching of Jesus. This was seen by Paul to be a dangerous menace. So also, John's protest in 2 John verse 9, anyone who goes too far, as to say in the name of progress, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Let's talk about covenant. Paul defined his own Christian identity and agenda when he asked us to follow him as he follows Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Paul clarified his own Christianity as in opposition to the law of Moses. Paul said, I, Paul, who am a Jew and a Christian, am not under the law. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20. Evangelicals have been seriously misled when they were told that the Jesus of history merely kept the law of Moses in the letter. What they were not told often was that Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses, bringing the new, fulfilled words of the new covenant, elsewhere called by Paul the Torah or law of Messiah. This is not just a copy of the law of Moses in the letter. Jesus promised to fulfill the words of Moses, not just to repeat them. Thus, for example, Moses allowed for divorce in some cases. But Jesus, the new Moses and the prophet like Moses, dismissed those words of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, verse 24. He called them a temporary concession for hardness of heart. Now, Jesus said, those words are to be replaced and removed by the original Genesis provision for marriage. You see then how Jesus goes back to the beginning. Jesus is the new Adam, the Adam who was supposed to be, but failed in the end to be the ruler of the world. And so the kingdom of God gospel is the massive cry of Jesus for restitution and restoration, a reformation of what Adam failed to carry out so dramatically. This was a reformation, of course, which never happened in the 16th century. 
I know now how sadly we were misled in the Herbert W. Armstrong days, though I can value the lessons learned in those difficult days. The Herbert W. Armstrong platform was, do you want to obey God? We all nodded and were then directed to the Ten Commandments. What we did not grasp were the words of Jesus in Paul, where Paul pulled out all the stops to convince the people that there are two covenants, the first and the second. There was the covenant of bondage, likened to Hagar, at Sinai, and then the new covenant in the spirit-giving words of Jesus. Paul explained that there are two covenants, and the first was the law, added 430 years later than Abraham. Paul includes himself, as before conversion, under that law of bondage. We, Paul says, were kept under a custodial guard until faith came. But now, Paul said, we are no longer under that Torah, the temporary custodian. There is thus in the New Testament a form of Torah which we are forbidden to believe and obey, and it goes with physical circumcision. Let me say to every one of you, Paul said, that if you insist on getting circumcised in the flesh, that is, you will be obliged to keep the whole law. Galatians 5 verse 3. Ask your friends to define this whole law which we must not keep. Hebrews is brilliantly illuminating. Jesus was the first and original preacher of salvation. According to Hebrews 2 verse 3, Mark 1 verse 1 and following, and salvation is given to those who obey Jesus. Hebrews 5 verse 9. That takes us right back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Luke 16 verse 16 is key. The law and prophets were until John the Baptist, and from the days of John the Baptist onwards, the gospel of the kingdom, that's to say Christianity, has been proclaimed. No wonder then that Jesus said John is the greatest human being ever to have lived. He marks the beginning of a mighty shift in eras. The shift does not begin with Paul, nor even at the cross. The faith does not begin in the book of Acts. The menace of dispensationalism, as we have seen now, threatens Luke 16 verse 16. Jesus thus gave the words of the new covenant, as to say the fulfilled spiritual words of the law of Moses in a brand new brilliant key. No wonder that the dull water of purification became the intoxicating wine of the new covenant. No wonder then that the brilliant words of the new covenant uttered by Jesus with full approval of God, who said, This is my son, listen to him. 
Why do you think we have three corroborating versions of the life and gospel teaching of Jesus? And then John and his heavy stress on the words of Jesus, which are spirit and truth. John 6, verse 63. The words of the new covenant are life imparting and they lead to immortality in the kingdom. John 1 verse 1 speaks of the word, lowercase w, from the beginning, the wisdom of God that is. It was the gospel word of the kingdom which God had in mind from the beginning. The law, that's to say the law in the letter, was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. John 1 17. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. In Torah, as the writer to the Hebrew says, in Torah on better promises. In other words, it's the new Torah. The devil's lie is to push back Jesus and his teaching into the old covenant and then present Paul as the founder of Christianity. We must be deliberate and activist to stem this awful tide of error. And Paul remembered this with his teaching that the gospel or the word contains the key to life and immortality. Satan's attacks are directed to the muddling and confusing of the saving words of the gospel, beginning with Jesus, as Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 says. And Jesus, of course, based his gospel of the kingdom message on the words of Daniel about the kingdom. Daniel 2 verse 44, Daniel 7 verses 18, 22 and 27. Jesus also expanded and expounded the kingdom gospel in 22 chapters of Revelation, which Luther, early on in his ministry, pronounced to be a non-Christian book. And Calvin wrote no comment on the book of Revelation. Listen finally to Messiah Jesus in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. This is hiding from you in your translation, but clearly there in the Greek, Jesus spoke of the kingdom in the language of covenant. I covenant with you, 12, as the Father covenanted to give me a kingdom, and you will be seated on 12 thrones to administer the 12 tribes regathered in the kingdom. This is repeated in Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27, and in Daniel chapter 7, verses 18, 22, and 27. Back now to Jeremiah 27, verse 5, which says that God wants to give the earth to those who please him. So Paul likewise said, the promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world, Romans 4, verse 13, the gospel was preached ahead of time to Abraham, Galatians 3, verse 8. The gospel then consists of property, 
progeny and prosperity. Are you ready to receive the gift of God by the grace of God? The gift that is of the whole world and all its governments? Please don't cop out by saying, if I can just hold the door for a thousand years, God is more excited about your God-given talents, which he of course gave you. Mark 1 verse 1 is the beginning of the gospel as Jesus preached it. Not just the gospel about him. To be saved, you must believe the word, covenant, gospel about the kingdom. That's a command in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. This is the Jesuanic covenant, Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. We must, of course, believe, too, in the atoning, substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins, and, of course, in his resurrection, but we must see all this under the umbrella of the Saviour's passion to be the second Adam, man as God's vice-regent. This is man as God intended us to be, modelled by Jesus. Are you ready to run the world with Jesus? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says, and Paul is upset that his converts didn't understand this, do you not know that the saints are going to manage the world? This is the same as inheriting the kingdom, as Paul said a few verses later. Switch on the news and see if you think we need the kingdom to come.